Hello, Gregoire. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. What are we talking about today? Today we are going to have a discussion on how to keep psychoanalysis alive. Mm -hmm. Nothing less. Yeah, as if analysis were dead. But <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> you want to keep it alive, though. Yes, exactly. We're going to talk about that. And uh, among other things, we are going to talk about the definition of what it means to be alive. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, how we deal with younger patients, uh, the way we adapt to patients, what are we adapting to, a question that we raised in uh, previous episodes, but we are going back to it is uh, how we can evolve without betraying the idea of psychoanalysis and um, how far we can change psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis finally in our society. Hmm. That sounds like a lot. It's just a discussion. We try to keep it within the context of keeping alive the, yeah. <laughs> the field. We could probably say more about that topic. Yes. But it's an... Just as usual, a conversation. It's a conversation and um, it has its limits, that's it. And if you come up with uh, suggestions, ideas, if you think that what we said was completely irrelevant, please let us know. I thought you were going to say, please don't let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't let us know. We want to we wanna feel very reassured in our... Uh, in what we talk about. Yeah, because we are as right, that's as we know. <laughs> No, please do. I mean, yes, I'm... Uh, absolutely. And we are very interested in uh, having uh, people giving us other ideas. Mm -hmm. That's about it. If you want to connect, send us an email, discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. We have Twitter, Facebook. You can leave us a comment and uh, also on SoundCloud. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielsen. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. we are going to try to answer today oh you're so hopeful i know <laughs> let's be more reasonable the question we are going to try to discuss today is how do we keep psychoanalysis alive in the last episode mm -hmm. we had a discussion on what is psychoanalysis yes we won't go back there as much as uh, we did last time maybe there are different kinds of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis in the room, psychoanalysis in society, 
psychoanalysis in the therapist, maybe the therapist, him or herself. Psychoanalysis and literature, we can see that happening more and more often in academic settings. What is? The approaching literature from a psychoanalytic perspective. You mean a psychoanalytic perspective or with references to psychoanalytic writing? I have seen syllabi of courses on literature or courses in, in other areas, and they, in fact, read Freud or they read some of the most important psychoanalysts. They are trying to connect two different fields. I was going to tell you that they might be reading Freud, but maybe do they read it as psychoanalyst? Obviously, no. No. But do you have to be a psychoanalyst to read Freud and try to use it? No. Not necessarily? No, I don't think so. I mean, you could be a psychoanalyst and still betray Freud, and you can be someone who's not psychoanalyst and follow some of his guiding principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we keep psychoanalysis alive? Do we have to start with the definition of life? <laughs> oh, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> alive. Let's say to keep a movement in which uh, there's creativity. It's not just a repetition of the same again and again. Mm -hmm. A dead psychoanalysis would be someone who knows everything, repeats the same thing, is not curious, mm -hmm. and whatever goes against what is supposed to happen is uh, considered to be a mistake because the theory is correct. Yeah. That's death. That's the death. So there is no change. There's a repetition. I would add also that to be alive also implies the possibility of reproduction. And it doesn't have to be biological reproduction, of mm -hmm. course. But there is something about leaving something for the next generation. For me, for that to happen, for psychoanalysis to be alive, it requires that we understand where we are located in our culture, in our so social world. What seem to be the challenges that people who come to our offices, let's just look at the, the office, what seem to be the, the psychopathologies that we observe? And I say psychopathology as more as what kind of challenges our patients are experiencing. If we don't adapt to what they bring, we will die. Challenges and compromise formations. Correct. Because it's not only the challenges, it's also how people, as members of a society, feeding from what the society can offer them as solutions and mm -hmm. also escapes, etc., how they create a compromise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that evolves through time. Correct. When we read Freud, when we read Winnicott, we read many famous or less famous uh, authors, they speak from their time. Their time, the social location, the kind of patients they worked with. And today is not this time. It's not that time. And therefore the symptoms or, as you say, compromised formations are going to be different. And so we need to make sure that we are sensitive to how our patients, I was going to say evolve, but maybe at my point, in my career, I would more, more say present. I haven't sensed since I started working a big shift 
in the way people present themselves. In I mean, in the room, you say. I witnessed the shift from when I was in France, and then I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. There was a shift there, mm-hmm. but once in New York, I mean, certainly the question of climate change is um, showing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. To my surprise, a lot less than I thought it would show up. I have the same clinical experience. I think it would be more prevalent in our co- in in the therapy room. Yeah, and it's not. It's yeah. The older patients raise it. Okay. The younger patients don't, which is intriguing. You say how they present. Mm-hmm. What I am experiencing in the room is that new patients are younger. And I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Do they come with a similar request? Similar, yes. They don't come here because they experience that they there's something wrong with them. That's a good thing, no? They feel lost. They want to l- know themselves, but they feel lost. You think it's a good thing that they don't come with thinking that there's something wrong with them? From my perspective, if a patient says, I'm curious about myself, I think that's better than, I have this symptom and I want you to help me get rid of the symptom. Okay. Yeah, if you have a request to just erase a symptom, uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, mm-hmm. a, tough, a mm-hmm. tough one. The way I work, I found that it's an easier starting point when someone comes and brings, I would say, a suffering. Yes. I do that i don't know why mm-hmm. it's hurting me yeah but you see it's different than just well, i feel kind of lost and i want to talk there is something that i am observing of this younger generation that at least come to me this group that come to me that they feel lost because they cannot connect and they try but they don't know how to connect it's a relational pattern that they don't understand And I, I'm guessing that to keep psychoanalysis alive is, yeah, coming to, back to, the question, yeah. is to be able to welcome the patients through a new eye. Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking, we are taught psychoanalysis from the past, which is normal. Mm-hmm. Yes, It pre-existed us. Mm-hmm. We are taught what has been written and how it has been digested mm-hmm. by some people. Okay. Then you have people from the present to come to see you. And I find that how to keep psychoanalysis alive and how it sometimes both natural and difficult is to not just create, maintain a frame in which you can, as a clinician, uh, reconcile, do some kind of synthesis between what you have learned and what is in front of you. Mm-hmm. Which on a day-to-day basis, can be kind of anxiety-provoking. Well, you will have to abandon the cliches, meaning the patient says X, and I know that I need to respond with Z, which is a misunderstanding of, an, of analysis, because that's an anxiety of the analyst, not the patient. It can be, but I also, yeah, I think it questions what we, I mean, we've talked about that last time, but it questions our connection to psychoanalysis. What do you I, mean? Is it alive within us or is it something that we apply? Of course, to me, it seems obvious that it is something alive within me. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that by doing so, 
and eventually when I will have more time to write about it, to share my experience, mm -hmm. will participate in keeping psychoanalysis alive. Mm -hmm. I can see how it is very reassuring to think, okay, someone's uh, behaved in such a way, in such a way, Lacan said that, Freud said that, Melanie Klein said that, so I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. That's very reassuring. That's my point about the anxiety, yes. It is easier to ground yourself in what someone else has said, but then again, that person said whatever they said in a different social location, time, different populations. Different exactly, different population, you know. But still, we, at least that's my belief, being all humans, we most likely share a similar psyche in terms of general functioning. I would say yes, and also what levels the playing field is suffering, but how suffering manifests itself in different locations, populations, it, it requires the analyst then to adapt. So to keep psychoanalysis alive, there's something about adaptation. This is becoming to ego, ego psychology now. <laughs> well, well, but it's, okay. What are we adapting to? Maybe we're adapting to the patient's needs. Well, the patient is a subject of need. The patient is asking for those needs to be satisfied. But what are the needs that you're finding nowadays in your patients? I think I'm finding that for many patients that bringing sometime social aspects of their life mm -hmm. can ease the dynamic if it's used with some tact in a subtle way. Um, when I work with people who come from France, mm -hmm. they do experience something often that is unexpected to them, especially if they were born from a family who did not experience uh, immigration. Yes. Is that they experience immigration. Yes. And the experience of immigration is quite weird. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unspoken loss. Yes. There's a feeling of helplessness, a feeling of isolation that is mostly unspoken. Mm -hmm. And I found that without overusing it, without imposing my preconception of what immigration can be, to mention to some of my patients, not all of them, you know, you still stay sensitive to, to the specific dynamic with sure. someone. To some of them, to hear that was helpful. To hear what? To hear maybe part of what you're experiencing is connected to the experience of immigration. Oh, I, I agree with you, absolutely. Because you come from France. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty well-off country even if not everybody's there is rich, but if you immigrate, usually you have some means. It's not systematic, but mm -hmm. usually you have some means. But still you feel lost, and you experience mm -hmm. something that you hear about when you're in France. Oh, the immigrants, oh, they're annoying. Oh, the immigrants, why do they want to keep talking their language? Why do they need their mm -hmm. food? Why do they keep their habits, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you are the immigrant, yeah, and you want to speak your language. Your language. You want to find some good bread difficult <laughs> <laughs> it's a spoiler for everybody it's difficult <laughs> very difficult even in new york <laughs> you wanna you don't understand why americans are behaving in such a way like 
why are people so nice and then they don't make any friends, things like that. Mm -hmm. Immigration creates a split within the subject. Of course. Mm -hmm. There's a before and after. There's a connection to the country they come from that becomes mystical because... Idealized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the friends they left Mm -hmm. is not the friends that is existing outside of them anymore. No. So they are connected to the past. That's something I found was interesting. And of course, when you read Freud, Freud is never going to talk about that Mm -hmm. because the population he was working with was not directly um, impacted by such mm-hmm. questions. There were people who were very well off in general and uh, traveled Europe, etc. It was not uh, the question was asked. Uh, the I symptoms mean, were different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the difficulties were very different too. Yeah. So I think adapting uh, psychoanalysis, in some ways, the biggest part is to include something of the social, but also something of the social rule. Of the social rules? Yes. What do you mean? What I mean is that it was striking to me when I uh, moved here in New York to see how expanded relational psychoanalysis was. In the United States, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what I know is in the United States, which is mostly New York. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have to say. Yes. I don't know what they do in Texas or <laughs> in Arizona. <laughs> But let us know. If you listen if from, from there. Texas and Arizona. <laughs> Please. And uh, mm-hmm. if you come from uh, other places too. And I could make sense of how relational was, just like ego psychology was at, the, at, an, at a different time, a reaction to the American society. Mm-hmm. Just like probably Lacan was very successful in France because for some reason it spoke to something of the French culture mm-hmm. or French, dyna- French society dynamics. Mm-hmm. And... Like this idea that the question of asymmetry was resolved in the way American culture could tolerate it. Mm-hmm. I think in France, the question of asymmetry, which is inevitable in the psychoanalysis, is answered differently. Yeah. It was answered differently with ego psychology. Yes. With ego psychology, it was, yeah, of course, I'm the reference as an analyst, yeah. and you have to become like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then with uh, relational, it's something more of friendly chats. You analyze. I think you need to be careful about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I okay. That's that's the problem. Is that it depends on the people who are practicing. Mm-hmm. And I've heard. I mean, I've heard. I've heard different ways to practice relational psychoanalysis, and. It is true that what stuck with me were the most absurd example I heard. Of course, it, it stays yeah. with you. It stayed uh, with me yeah. more than what I thought was just like, yeah, well, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. We, um, but yeah, what I heard sometimes were uh, people using uh, theoretical excuses to actually not work mm-hmm. as analysts mm-hmm. and to talk about themselves more than they should to share about themselves more than mm-hmm. they should. In a sense, more than they should, meaning more than what is useful to the patient. To the patient. Because we are working for the patient. Mm-hmm. And I found that relational, often in the way I heard, was used as an excuse to not do the work. That's an interesting way of putting it. My take is that there is no developmental metapsychology in... Yeah, it's a technique. It's more about what happens in the room. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've heard that some people are working, uh, doing other kind of work in the relational field, but your point is that it grew up here for because that is what the society, our culture in the United States <laughs> was almost demanding. It was the path of least resistance. Mm, could be, yeah. And so there comes a question, which is, since psychoanalysis has to evolve to survive, mm-hmm. how does it do that without disappearing? How do we make sure that psychoanalysis does not turn into something else? We had an element of answer last time being to maintain central something of the fantasy. Correct, an unconscious fantasy. Yeah, unconscious fantasies, mm-hmm. of course. That is a tension. I don't have any uh, other uh, answer to that, but that's something, the tension. Like, you need to evolve. You can't just practice like Freud said he practiced mm-hmm. in his book, which then becomes very different when you read his letters and then you read his notes. Anyway, yeah, you need to be curious, but you still need to maintain what psychoanalysis has to be. What would be the litmus test that we are working with unconscious fantasies? Is that the only thing that we can call psychoanalysis? And what about the object's relations? What about the possibility of a patient to take in a new object through the relationship with the analyst? I think that is in, uh, that's part of, of psychoanalysis. How do we keep that alive? I've been pondering the role of interpretation in the room. I think we have, you and I have mentioned, you know, that we are moving away from these grand interpretations where, you know, with the Erupol and da 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 all of that. And mm. The cool ones. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the fantastic. <laughs> the one you can bring up uh, at your psychoanalytic dinner. <laughs> yes. And I told him it was his mother. <laughs> In the end. Uh, <laughs> So are those interpretations really propelling psychic change? I think they bring insight, but I, I'm beginning to focus more in terms of my work. I focus more on what's going on between the patient and I as a way to understand the fantasies of the patient or what is being projected. I also t- have my own relational history, meaning I, if, of course I was born and I had my primary caretakers and and that's part of the mix here. So I think to keep it alive, we need to keep in tension not only the unconscious fantasies and interpretation of conflict, but also the possibility of new objects relations that might promote psychic change in our patients. So I think that that needs to be part of it. Especially if what I'm observing is a lot of my younger patients saying I'm lost and I cannot connect, that is a symptom of some sort of pathology connected to objects. And you can't address that in a systematic matter. You cannot. You cannot. Yes. No, you cannot. No. And that is certainly part of keeping psychoanalysis alive. And probably what doomed psychoanalysis in the US with ego psychology being at least too much of it. Uh, probably some clinicians were more subtle than that, too much of an emphasis on the neurotic functioning with Mm -hmm. ego, super ego, and id. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. If you can get out of it and be sensitive to how useful the technical tools can be and how not useful they can be, then you are not keeping psychoanalysis alive. Mm-hmm. You are keeping it somewhat as a cult, as a religion. A religion. You go through a ritual, you expect something magical to happen at the end of a ritual. Yes. But that, again, well, that, that would be the fantasy. We keep alive the fantasy and not psychoanalysis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you see, to me, it's fascinating because it's, again, an expression of how magical thinking can happen anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. Even in a place where we're supposed to uncover magical thinking, mm-hmm. we are certainly easily tempted to use magical thinking without even realizing it, mm-hmm. that the same solution will apply to any problem. Yeah. Yeah, that is the magic of rituals, that if you do the ritual correctly, something good will happen. So if we interpret the defenses and the resistances and we do it carefully, the patient will be cured. No one talks like that anymore, I don't think. Well, people talk like that a lot in case presentation. Oh, but the case presentations are embellished stories. Yeah, but shouldn't we, as analysts, stop that? Shouldn't we actually try? To stop. I have a study group, and what we work through the in clinical presentations, things that don't work, <laughs> and we try to learn what you know. Wh- why did I decided to do that interpretation or do that other thing, or what happened? Why did the patient terminate it? What was? Could I see the signs before? Clinical presentations usually are very embellished. The beautiful, beautiful gifts that the presenter offers the audience when they turn like that when they turn like those kind of gifts they are a drug they keep us asleep we also that's so beautiful yeah Mm -hmm. and so we go back to this idea of religion Mm -hmm. like oh you i'm going to describe the way i work the way i'm supposed to work not the way i work because to describe the way i work would be first much harder and then kind of depressing (laughs) and would raise a lot of questions and so I'm going to feed you with what we all think I should do and we take that in and we say wonderful you're a great analyst but I think we would learn more if a great analyst would say you know I made a mistake but not just one Uh, well (laughs) not just mistakes but also unknown it is harder to convey. When I presented for final case, I tried to be as honest as possible in my presentation. Mm-hmm. And actually, I found it difficult when I was writing it because it's easy even for ourselves to simplify what happened. Of course. To create yeah. shortcuts. Yeah. But then we're not helping anybody. No. And I, so how to keep psychoanalysis alive? Maybe that's also part of it, to cut the bullshit. But it is anxiety triggering. Of course. My final case was a a treatment in which I changed. (laughs) I was approaching the treatment from a certain perspective. It was working, but then not working and not working. And we were stalling and the, the, the treatment was not moving. And so I changed how I was working. Instead of keep drilling and drilling the same thing, I need to shift because the patient is not getting what they need from me. I want to raise a question that we already uh, approached in different episodes. 
is how far do we go in terms of change? Mm-hmm. It's a question that we, we raised or I raised um, uh, in an episode, and I want to bring it back somewhat similarly. When do we know when it's too much? Too much of what? Too much of a change. Is psychoanalysis supposed to go through the motion of society only? Because I find that what I perceive to be a psychoanalytic understanding of humans and their creations is very rarely politically correct. Psychoanalysis is not it's not about being politically correct. Yes. Okay, okay. But if we follow society, if we follow the changes mm-hmm. of a society, aren't we at risk to become too adapted to those changes? Yes, if we don't question. That is, the psychoanalysis should be critical. The way that we don't question is by not exploring. So the patient is saying something about their whatever identities, and that is a window to explore not the why, but the what does it mean for you to say, I am filling the blank. How do you navigate the world you are in with that identity, let's say. It's the exploration. If you go in that direction, a patient's in this polarized context we have in the United States, the patient thinks that we are taking something away from them. We're questioning their identity instead of trying to understand what is this identity that you're talking about. In some ways, that is a correct assumption. When someone comes to our office and says, I am the way I am. Yeah. Uh And we say, are you? Well, I would not use that. (laughs) (laughs) Question. Okay, first, nobody comes saying I am the way I am. <laughs> Second, we never say, are you, are you? just like that. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. You are being I'm too so concrete. I am so <laughs> glad that we agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a one way or another, psychoanalysis is going to tell them, are you? In one way or another, yes. Mm-hmm. When... You do that on a population and on an individual who feels threatened in their identity. Mm-hmm. The mere fact of questioning it will be experienced as you being a ex-fob. That the questioning will be quickly experienced as a rejection at all. Yes, and that needs to be understood as um, the dynamics and marginalized groups. But the question, when when someone says, I am straight, analysis will question that. Yes. So this is not about being politically correct. In a given society, there are certain questions that are allowed to be asked. Correct. And some others, not. Yes. So... We also have to think that psychoanalysis exists through human beings, mm-hmm. and those human beings might feel completely comfortable being attacked by a patient with whom we question the straight, the fact that they are straight. Mm-hmm. Not that they are not straight, but the way they are. The way they are straight. Okay, mm-hmm. and maybe they're not straight. We don't know where it's going to lead. 
mm-hmm. but to be open to what is might not be. Okay. Mm-hmm. And those same people might feel a lot less comfortable being characterized as transphobe, mm-hmm. as homophobic. So we have to think about that. This has an influence in the way we produce knowledge too. Mm-hmm. I'm happy that we can question being straight. Yes. I feel like the question of being gay, we can start to question it. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, it gets more complicated. Yeah. Again, I think it's connected to the power dynamics in marginalized groups. The anxiety stirred up when they feel that what they say is not validated. But again, my perspective is that this is not about validation. In the psychoanalytic room, this is not about validation. It's about understanding in what ways you are, the way you are in this world. How do, how do you navigate the world with these identities you say you carry? How you relate to others? That leads to... I guess a struggle that we have is that there is psychoanalysis in the room and then the psychoanalysis in the society. And when someone comes to mm-hmm. see us, most likely gay, straight, trans, non-binary, whatever, most likely they will be open to questioning because mm-hmm. they come, because we create a therapeutic alliance, yeah. because they get to trust us and they get to trust that we don't want to arm them but we want to explore Mm -hmm. and expand their understanding of themselves correct yes but then there is that side Mm -hmm. in which the psychoanalytic discourse is going to touch people who didn't ask anything Mm -hmm. people who are not in a position of curiosity people with whom you didn't create a therapeutic alliance And right now, I'm not sure how to think the psychoanalytic discourse in the society that wouldn't become a betrayal of psychoanalysis because we don't want to be the bad guys. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is that there are two psychoanalyses? I'm saying that there is a tension in psychoanalysis, which mm-hmm. is at least one tension, which is that we use psychoanalysis in a very specific context, Correct. which is the context of people who have whatever desire Mm -hmm. to come and talk about themselves, understand themselves. They feel a lack. Yes. And this experience of a lack is going to be the ground on which we base the work. Correct. You are going to write an article about your experience. You even create a podcast Mm -hmm. and you talk about it. Mm Mm-hmm. That uh, sounds like Gregoire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> well, and like uh, like someone else I'm talking to. Oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> By the way, we didn't advertise. So in some ways, only the people who are really interested find the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> they listen to which, it. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, some of the things we say might be completely unheardable. Yeah. Violent yeah. and uh, yeah. disruptive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... Let's say you create an article, you go on a show and you talk. Then the way you share psychoanalysis cannot be the same. It cannot. The tension is how do you create a space in which you don't betray psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. and still uh, make it something that people can hear? 
And I find that this tension is very difficult. There are examples of people who had radio shows or would write in papers. I think Winnicott did that. He would have a radio show. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I did, think yeah. if Winnicott did. In South America, there was a uh, Pichon Riviere who would write in the newspaper. It would be a psychoanalytic perspective. But they had a gift of talking to people who were not coming with a lack to the office. They were speaking to the general public. And they were speaking in a specific environment too. Correct, yes. I feel like probably after the war, or during the war, psychoanalysis in Britain mm -hmm. was probably more recognized and yeah. appreciated. Mm -hmm. And people would accept some of the preconceived ideas of psychoanalysis mm -hmm. and in Argentina too. Mm -hmm. In the US? Well, we had Theodore Reich, but it, uh, again, he was an immigrant. It was a long time ago. And it was a long, long time ago. And But from what I've heard, his books were very widely read. So s it's interesting. Theodore Reich said that in a letter, he wrote a letter asking psychotherapists to join the efforts against the war in Vietnam. So to not be neutral. To not be neutral, yes. What he says in the neutrality led Germany to what Germany did. Yeah. People being neutral, I mean. This is it for today, I guess. Indeed. Thank you for listening to us. If you can, give us five stars. Yes, and contact us. Yeah. You have our email address, and you can find us on Facebook and iTunes and SoundCloud, etc. Yeah. And uh, if you can, give us five stars. And if you like the podcast, which you might if you're listening to the end, well, talk about it. Uh, mention the podcast to your friends. Please. And let it be known. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.